Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975, to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2002, and we're going to be talking about this latest head... Oh, I don't know what I'm going to say in this episode. There's so much to say, but I feel like a fucking idiot. I mean, what if I read all the wrong things into it? I mean, I don't even know. I mean, everyone's going to fucking attack me on the Discord, you fucking dummy. The movie? Adaptation. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, And this is the podcast where we are trying to find the best movies of all time. And it is also the first time we are back in the studio. Amy, look at this. Very I love exciting. it. Do you think if I give you a high five across the table, the, the, the sound of palm versus palm will be audible? I mean, definitely. I mean, this is a high tech. Scoop. Here we go. One, Boom. two, three. There we go. You heard it. You're here in the same space. Things are getting kind of back to normal. So I'm curious about how this is going to be. You know, I went to my first Alamo Drafthouse movie. Uh, I saw Sonic 2 with my kids. Not bad. Not a bad movie. I I love Sonic 1. And I thought, and I think I talked about this a little bit last week, Sonic 2 uh, did an amazing job of like making that mythology digestible and really fun. <laughs> like, I love it. It's crazy. You have yeah. a giant robot fighting. I'm like, I'm in. It, it felt much more realistic. And I don't mean to cite this Raven uh, than Pacific Rim. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I, you know, that you know, on that level, you know, if you're saying Sonic 2 is better than Pacific Rim, I, I'll take that bet. Fair enough. I went to go see if we were talking about what we saw this weekend. Yeah. I went to UCLA to see an old movie from Anita Luce. You know, the like female f- screenwriter who yeah. like would grow up to do Gentleman for Blondes. But she was around since the since the silent era, since the 19 teens, when she was a teenager herself. She did a movie in the early 30s called San Francisco. And it is a musical disaster romance starring Clark Gable as like a saloon keeper right before the big earthquake of 1906. Whoa. Two hours long. Very, very long. Yes. But like... Epic and watching it, I was like, oh, James Cameron, a thousand percent watched this before Titanic. A thousand. They even do a near my God to the bit at the end. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, I'm excited. I got to check that out. 
it's so great to see like classic big movies on like the big screen. I feel like it has a weight that's different. And I'm so excited because this Friday, by the time you listen to this, it will be done. Um, I'm going to be at Lily Tomlin's screening of All of Me, uh, which is going to be coinciding with her getting her star on the Walk of Fame. And to see that movie, like Lily Tomlin and Steve Martin together in a movie, like in a crowded theater, uh, while it's a little scary to be in a crowded theater, uh, it is so fun. I can't wait to see like a Lily Tomlin movie on the big screen like that. Oh, I'm so glad you're doing that. I, I'm so glad she's getting her star on the Walk of Fame. Yes. I wrote the article about her getting her star for Variety that's coming up oh, because wow. I love Lily Tomlin myself. Man, she should have gotten her star like decades ago, but I'm so happy she's getting it now. Like her comedy, writing about her getting her star in the Flock of Fame gave me an excuse to go back and like listen to all of her comedy albums from the past. Like she just was so cutting edge in the 70s. And I adore her. We got to talk about her a bit when we did Nashville. Yeah. The movie that she got in her very first movie gets an Academy Award supporting actor nomination for it, like right out of the box. She's just such a talent. I adore her. Um, I got to watch her work a handful of times on Grace and Frankie and- it's amazing to see her put together a scene because you can watch it on stage and you're like, this is fantastic. And then when you watch it at home, it feels totally different. I don't know how to describe it. It, it just, she pops in both regards. It's not like, oh, you see her on set and it looks not right. And then on film it pops. It's like, she is bringing it both ways. I am in awe of her and in the time I've spent with her in these last uh, years, I always wanted like just needle her for information because she's been at the center of so many amazing things, had so many amazing interactions and seems sort of like, yeah, yeah. I'll ask her something and she's like, oh yeah. Like not, she's not going to give you a big story about it, but I just want to get in there. And uh, are you going to be there on Friday? No, uh -uh, no, 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 no. But I'm very jealous that you are. That sounds like so fun. I think it'll be a blast. And just, when I was going back and researching about her, I found an article where, um, from the seventies, where um, Lorne Michaels was calling her just like the future of comedy in the 70s, that the way she was like doing portraits of women and capturing like the essence and writing jokes that weren't even like necessarily funny, but you felt like it was empathetic comedy. Yeah. That her type of comedy in a time of the 70s where people are like punching down and being mean, especially even in the 70s going into 80s, everybody being like joke, 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 making fun of people. She ha She turned comedy into a way of just like, making you care about women you would never meet, but that you sort of knew and that you sort of saw yourself in. Groundbreaking stuff that I still feel like she did better than anyone I can think of today. Well, and, you know, I just want to shout out, you know, Jane Wagner as mm -hmm. well, because Jane Wagner is her uh, partner, but also her creative partner. And a lot of the stuff that you love of Lily is, is from Jane. You know, Jane has been such a large part of her career and they are, they are one, and it's yeah. really amazing to see. I don't even know where one begins and one ends as far as, like, what was coming out in that creative era where no, she was doing true. those shows. Yeah, Like, when Lily got a star on the Palm Springs Walk of Fame, she made a point of saying Jane's name has to be on it here with me, too. I love that. So I feel like the Lily star, when I look at it, I feel like I'll see Jane Wagner there underneath it, even if the name doesn't say it. I feel like it's – I guess it's if you know, you know. Yeah. Right? You know, it's so interesting. We're coming across this totally organically, but this – idea of who is behind the scenes. Today's movie that we're talking about, Adaptation, really talks about this, this idea of like, who is responsible for some of this creation? Oftentimes, I think writers are overlooked. Obviously, everyone talks about Sorkin and you hear about Shonda Rhimes. There are a handful of writers that are 
writer celebrities. But for the most part, writers toil away behind the scenes. People that are in the know know. That's how they get their next jobs. But, you know, so many people work on scripts. There are so many names attached to projects. I don't know if you know about this, but the WGA is just working on this new way of representing writers. So if you've done a year of work on a script and then it gets made, but your script has been rewritten or, you know, only a small part has stayed, you will still be able to have a credit for that. Because for a long time, writers will just be thrown at scripts and then they throw them off, put them on. And oftentimes the arbitration process, like this idea of who gets credit for the script is a very tricky thing. Um, Yeah. And knowing that as a critic, it makes it hard to talk about the writing in your review because you don't actually know if the person that you're crediting or blaming wrote the line that you're even like have a problem with, you know, like you have no idea the, the actual story. It's sort of like the more you know about how movies get made, the harder it is to write a review where you feel like in any position to say what went wrong. Yeah. It's a very interesting world we live in because you could be incredibly successful and you could have nothing to show for it. Like this idea that you are writing, you're working on great projects, you're handing in great scripts, but there are so many obstacles to get that script made. And then even when it gets made, to get credit for it because other people come in and there's sneaky ways of getting credit. Like, you know, there's a trick that people used to use, and I think they still do. If I'm rewriting your script, I go in and I change all the characters' names And I change, you write a movie about New York and I change it to Boston. That way, when an arbiter at the WGA sits down and looks at it, they go, well, I mean, 75% of the script is totally different. The other script took place in New York. This takes place in Boston. That character was called Molly. That character now is called Raven. You know, it's like you can flip everything around. And it's this really hard thing to fight for credit. I've watched it up close millions of times. And it's, uh, yeah, I just think it's really interesting to get into a movie about writing and the toll it takes because it truly is the unsung hero in this world. We celebrate big, big movies. And I think, you know, you'd be hard pressed to talk about who wrote a lot of your favorite, favorite films. (laughs) It's true. I feel like the cautionary tale that I always think of, you know, coming at this from the critical point of view is um, the story of like Joan Didion and her mm-hmm. husband John Dunn doing the movie that they wanted to do on Jessica Savage. She was like a oh, yeah. newspaper reporter who yes, had a lot yes. of drinking and drug problems and they wanted to make a true story about her. And then it got turned in over like the adaptation and adaptation and adaptation process into like a romantic comedy with Michelle Pfeiffer. And that had nothing to do with their movie at all. And it was just like such an egregious warping of like yeah. the original creative seed of it that like Dunn wrote his own book about it, Monster. Like, and it's just the story of like how an idea in Hollywood can mutate into something beyond your control if you're a screenwriter. So interesting. Well, what a great way to get into today's episode. So Amy, instead of unspooling it, why don't we unwrite it? <laughs> that's, I don't know if that's any good. The year is 2002. The former CFO of Enron is indicted on 78 counts of wire fraud and money laundering. George Bush creates the Department of Homeland Security in order to fight the access of evil. U.S. Airways, WorldCom, and Kmart file for bankruptcy if 
you don't know this, Amy, there are only two Kmarts left in the country as of today. Oh, my goodness. Yep. It, I know. Well, where else will all of the TV stars of the 80s sell their towels? Well, we'll have to get our Kathy Ireland leggings somewhere else. Uh, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter wins the Nobel Peace Prize for dedicating his life to peace and democracy. And the hot films of this year are Chicago, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Harry Potter, and The Chamber of Secrets, Jackass the Movie, and today's film adaptation. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And uh, what was on the radio? Adaptation, directed by Spike Jones and written by Charlie Kaufman and his identical twin brother, Donald Kaufman, both of whom are on screen and both of whom are played by Nicolas Cage. Uh, adaptation is about Charlie's struggles to write a screenplay for the Susan Orlean nonfiction book, The Orchid Thief. In that book itself is an adaptation of like Orlean writing her New Yorker piece called Orchid Fever, where she profiled this man from Florida named John LaRote, who is passionate about orchids. Uh, Susan Orlean had a really hard time turning her journalism New Yorker piece into a book. Kaufman had a really hard time turning her book into a screenplay. His solution was to insert himself and Susan, who's played by Meryl Streep, and John, who's played by Chris Cooper, into the story, along with his totally real twin brother, Donald, who studied screenwriting at a three-day Robert McKee seminar and embraces writing movies that Charlie thinks are super cliche and dumb and totally not at all what he, the genius brother, would want to write. Take a listen. She hates me. She's disappointed. I could see it in her eyes when we met. I've got to stop sweating. Oh, she looked at my hairline. She thinks I'm bald. She's thinking I would never in a million years sleep with this guy. We think you're great. Oh, thanks. Wow, that's that's nice to hear. True story. The Oscars played along and nominated both Charlie and Donald Kaufman for the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar. Well, not the first time because Robert Town wrote Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, under a pseudonym, and he was nominated, or his pseudonym was nominated, for an Academy Award, which must be a bummer when you try to take your name off a movie and then it gets nominated and you can't retroactively go back. And do you want people to know? Do you not want people to know? That is a tricky one. I mean, I see like when Soderbergh, you know, uh, puts down like Logan Lucky, had a screenwriter that no one knew. And people don't know who wrote Logan Lucky. Could it have been him? Could it have been his wife? There are so many theories on who wrote Logan Lucky and the idea that you want to stay anonymous. That movie was successful. At one point, you'd be like, I, I actually wrote it. Uh, but <laughs> I love that idea that uh, there's like a little bit of a, a thrill in staying behind the scenes. I know. Although, alas for Charlie and Donald, they lost the Oscar. Can you, do you guess, do you remember what they lost it to? Oh, it's going to make me so upset. No, I don't. What did they lose the it to? The Pianist. Which seems like the perfect award film. Like it just, I have not <laughs> seen it. I'm sure it's great. I don't want to Emperor's New Groove this, but uh, I will say that this movie from a writing standpoint is one of the most interesting films you could argue one of the most interesting films <laughs> in the pantheon of screenwriting, right? Like yeah. The Pianist feels like I can give you 10 films in that genre that are probably equal to that movie. Yeah, I haven't seen The Pianist either, but I have to say it doesn't feel like a necessary screenplay to watch. No, no. But maybe that's just being me, me being harsh. Anyway, Adaptation was not a huge box office winner, but it did make a big impression on people, I would say bigger than The Pianist. And it added to the legend of Charlie Kaufman as a writer who is too smart and too neurotic to have an easy go of it in the world. Kind of like the number one hit on the Billboard charts when Adaptation was released on December 6, 2002. This is a song that's about writing, 
It's about writer's block. It's about nervous perspiration, which we have Charlie Kaufman having mm. in this film. It's about having a tenuous grip on your own reality as a wordsmith. It's this. Yo. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous. How dare you? How dare you trick me like that? It's not a trick. No. Has there ever been a movie more about losing yourself than that? No, I mean, my gosh. Well, this is a big year for self-reflection, right? Because, I mean, 8 Miles about Eminem and telling his story as Eminem. This is Charlie Kaufman telling his story. I mean, he's not in it. I mean, he is technically in it for about a frame or two. When uh, Nicolas Cage looks into the mirror at one point, it's a reflection of uh, Charlie Kaufman. Oh, just like what happened in the other winning time when Pat Riley was looking at himself. Wait, really? Yeah. Wow. I gotta check that out. I'm a little <laughs> bit behind. Um, it's getting better. I I was on since episode three. I just have been watching so many movies for shows like this that uh, it precludes me from watching things for pure enjoyment. Um, I want to talk about this movie, and I'm nervous that we will never get to fully unpack it the way that I want to. But I know you are such a Charlie Kaufman fan. Where does this fall for you? in the pantheon of Kaufman films. To be honest, in my Charlie Kaufman pantheon, I would put Adaptation as a lesser Kaufman. Really? I would. Okay, I break would. it down. I would. It's not my favorite Kaufman. I feel like I feel like what happens in Adaptation, him trying to show that he can tell a story that winds up being about everything and his struggle to do it and his sort of collapse and being able to do it and then like turning Adaptation as like meta reflection. I think that's all interesting as like a parlor game. But I think he winds up doing what he wants to do in adaptation originally with Synecdoche, New York. You know, and I feel like there's so much in Synecdoche that like comes from this experience of being on the adaptation set because it's about being a writer, casting somebody to play yourself, that person casting somebody else and all these like mirrors of reflections like the Spider-Man meme where they're all pointing at each other. To have him be on set and see Nicolas Cage and Nicolas Cage looking at him and Nicolas Cage being like, this is so surreal, I'm going crazy. I think he takes all of that experience plus his passion of wanting of what he wanted to do with adaptation, puts it into Synecdoche, and then that is his masterpiece. I love Synecdoche, and I know so many people do not uh, love it, and I think it's an incredibly dark movie. I have no issue with it, but I will say what I think Spike Jones does so well with Charlie Kaufman is the humanity. And I think without Spike Jones, you're left with a bleaker movie in the sense that, not that this is like the most uplifting film, but I think he's able to take everything that Charlie Kaufman does and imbue it with a little hope, a little bit more emotion without undercutting it. I'm not saying like, oh, he makes it rosy, but I think he's able to find why we like it. Like, for example, this movie really meanders for about 90 minutes, you know, and you're so captivated by the performances and the world, or at least I am, that you don't even realize there's no movie happening. It's sort of this you know, long story that you're waiting for the point to get to, but you're so caught up in it. And I think that in someone else's hands and maybe even Charlie Kaufman's hands is like boring. And I think Spike Jones is able to keep these plates spinning, make you lean forward, feel and care about these people. And I also want to put that on Nick Cage too. I think Nick Cage brings 
something, this is a, a really tough character to like. I've heard people go like, well, they, you know, Charlie Kaufman's like Woody Allen. He's not. He's much darker than Woody Allen. Like, you know, the, the Woody Allen that we know from film. Like, he is, like, Woody Allen is New York miserable. Like, a fun, like, oh, I'm complaining. And I, it, Larry David, it's light. It, it's, it's airy. This is a, this is a sweaty mess of a person. I think it all is encapsulated in that beautiful scene with Judy Greer when he asks her to go to the festival. Like, that, like, that scene is a gut punch. I mean, that, that's unvarnished, oh, it, it, it gets me in my heart so much. And I feel like that balance is what Spike Jones is able to do. The performances are, are, are letting it rise up a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I like a dark. I think that like the sadness of Synecdoche is so beautiful. But yeah, I mean, to your point, I think when Woody Allen makes fun of himself, he's like making fun of how he thinks other people might think of him, but he thinks he's a badass, mm-hmm. you know? Whereas I think Charlie Kaufman, when you have an intro like this right here, he kind of means it. Do I have an original thought in my head? My bald head? Maybe if I were happier, my hair wouldn't be falling out. Life is short. I need to make the most of it. Today's the first day of the rest of my life. I'm a walking cliche. I really need to go to the doctor, have my leg checked. There's something wrong. A bump. The dentist called again. I'm way overdue. If I stopped putting things off, I would be happier. All I do is sit on my fat ass. If my ass wasn't fat, I would be happier. I wouldn't have to wear these shirts with the tails out all the time. Like that's fooling anyone. I mean, of course, with like one big caveat, which is like all of the neuroses that he's giving his Charlie Kaufman on screen are not actually his. Like Charlie Kaufman uh, is not balding. He's not fat. He has a full head of hair and he's always been really thin. So at least he's like making up different neuroses. Well, he makes up that he has a brother. I mean, so many people thought that he had a brother. I mean, besides the fact that he co-credits him as uh, the writer, it's like (laughs) the beginning, middle and end. But what I mean is he's making fun of himself for what he probably worries about. You know, he's like making fun of himself for like a whole new set of worries that he actually doesn't have. He gives himself a little bit of a buffer. To just continue this Woody Allen comparison, then we'll leave it because I think this is much greater than Woody Allen. Woody Allen, to me, is someone who is above it all. And Charlie Kaufman, in his representations of himself, is someone who can't get out of the muck, right? Like it's, he's not smarter than everyone else. You know, he- Or he's kind of aware that he thinks he's smarter than everybody else, and he's mad at himself for thinking that. Yeah, there's a weird difference there. There's a cockiness to a Larry David or Woody Allen, even with the neuroses, that seems self-aware but also confident. And this is maybe self-aware. And it's your problem. Yes. Now I'll tell you this, Amy. Where Kaufman's like, if you don't like me, I probably did something wrong. Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. 
try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. I can't tell you that I've related to a character more than this character. Like that, really? oh my God. You, yes. But you're such a sunny guy. I mean, this movie speaks to me from like an emotional place more than like this character. One million percent. I was like, I really? think, yes. Is this your inner monologue? Oh, absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Yes. A hundred percent. And then like, you know, it's like there is something about this movie and watching it now and seeing it older that I think I'm a lot more able to like identify with like before I was like, this is so cool. I love it. And like Charlie Kaufman is such an interesting guy. He's playing himself and that's his brother, blah, 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 blah. And I think what I really got this time was this fight, this internal fight of these voices inside of you because mm-hmm. the brothers are two voices, right? It's like, it, it is what I love about the movie is like the three the movie that his brother is writing, the the very uh, the thriller that Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what is it? Meets uh, Sybil. You want to hear my pitch? Go away, goddammit. Hey, thanks a lot, buddy. Cool. Okay, there's a serial killer, right? Well, no, wait. And he's being hunted by a cop, and he's taunting the cop, right? Sending clues who his next victim is. He's already holding her hostage in his creepy basement. So the cop gets obsessed with figuring out her identity and in the process falls in love with her. Even though he's never even met her. She becomes like, like, like the unattainable, like, like the holy grail. It's a little obvious, don't you think? Okay, but here's the twist. We find out that, that the killer really suffers from multiple personality disorder, right? See, he's, he's actually really the cop and the girl. All of them are him. Isn't that fucked up? The only idea more overused than serial killers is multiple personality. Like, in a weird way, he's making fun of multiple personalities in a movie where a character is playing all roles, and he's also doing that in this movie. I mean, you know, he there's an element to him when his brother, where his brother represents maybe the side of him that he wants to be or the side that he's too critical to be, you know, do you put yourself down so much that you can't achieve? And I think he's looking at himself and saying, well, I can go in two roads, but I keep myself on this road. And I think that's a, it's a very interesting debate, which is why the third act pops so much because the idea is like he combines, he combines both parts of himself to make a movie that really pops uh, and makes an ending that is amazing. And then, with the death of his his more popular or, or more confident brother, he is able to, you know, merge. He becomes back to one. And it's not multiple personality per se, but it is a personification of of personality. I mean, it's kind of a magic trick, right? Yeah. Where he is like, but it's a magic trick where at the beginning. He's like, I'm going to do this. I'm sawing this woman in half. 
pretty corny maybe I don't know saw a woman in half kind of over it but by the time he saws the woman in half you're like oh that's a magic trick that's so marvelous well done you yeah. know like he sets up the idea that it's dumb and then somehow six, like wants to pull it off and makes it work well that 90 he, like, minutes that I'm but it's saying also like a mea culpa too it's like oh it's he's like apologizing for what he's doing as he's doing it and then also trying to wow you with doing it it's, it's a, every he kind of covers all of his emotional bases to which is why at the end of the movie it doesn't feel like the 90 minutes were wasted, right? You might feel, if you're watching this for the first time, you walk out after 90 minutes, like, what was he doing? I, I don't know. Like, what did I see? But every little piece builds to that end. It all was layered in there. And it, it, it is that that trick. It's like all the hints were there. It's that usual suspects. It's an <laughs> it's an emotional usual yeah. suspects. It like, really does pull you in. Well, it is. Yeah, it's like you, you when you finish the movie, then you like rewind to the very opening scene where he's like sitting down with his um, producer, Tilda Swinton, playing Valerie Thomas, who like was the producer on this movie, named her after the person he was working Love with it. on this movie, named his agent that Ron Livingston is playing against about his like real agent, Marty Bowen, who, by the way, did you know that Marty Bowen went on to do the Twilight films? Really? Well done, Marty Bowen. Wow, there he is. Yeah, yeah. He's not just the guy making jokes about doing people up the ass. <laughs> but he like puts in that scene where he's like sitting down with Tilda Swinton, as the real Valerie, describing everything he doesn't want his movie to be, which is exactly what it becomes. I guess I'm not exactly sure what that means. Oh. I'm not, I'm not sure I know what that means either. Um, you know, I just don't want to ruin it by making it a Hollywood thing, you know, like 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 an Orchid Heist movie or or something, you know, or, uh, you know, changing the orchids into poppies and turning it into a movie about drug running, you know? Why, why can't there be a movie simply about, about flowers? I guess we thought that maybe Susan, Orlean, and, and, and LaRoche could fall in love. Okay, and but I'm saying it, it's like I don't want to cram in sex or uh, guns or car chases, you know, I, or characters, you, you know, learning profound life lessons or growing or coming to like each other or overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end, you know. I mean, it's, it's, the, the book isn't like that, and, and life isn't like that. You know, it just isn't. I mean, that moment in the hotel room, that's the Donald script, right? Like the Charlie script is until the hotel room. And then the Donald script is after that, because the minute Donald comes in and goes to interview Meryl Streep, who, by the way, I know there's a lot of talk about how amazing Nicolas Cage is in this movie. And it is. And we are coming to this to talk about Nicolas Cage. And and I think we'll, we will get into this a little bit more, but he's fantastic but Meryl Streep gives one of the most like, like I love a, a Meryl Streep performance like this. It's it's joyful, it's so nuanced, and as the movie changes, she changes, and it's it's a lot. She is truly the other magician that you're like, oh my, wait, that's the same person. Like you don't even realize her switch. Like you know, Nicolas Cage is definitely in front almost dis distracting you from the change that's going on there. Because by the end of the film, what you see with Meryl Streep, when she is like trying to kill him as a drug addict. She's got like red rims around her eyes. Yeah. Like there's something in the, the, in the way that she's like this passionate, sweaty woman in the swamp that's so different from the manicured Susan Orlean at the very beginning. Yeah. She's just like a totally radical kind of like, animal woman like when she's like in it getting high with with chris cooper yeah and chris cooper as well like that sequence where 
I, I mean, I love this, this story, this love story. And that, that is going on in the Charlie script. Like this love story that starts off with him like saying, I don't want to do a love story, right? Yeah. I don't want, I don't want her to fall in love. That's what we hear in the beginning of the movie. But throughout the film, as we're in that world, the orchid thief world, it's one of the most beautiful love stories. And I love that moment you where- You think she, it's a beautiful love story? Oh, I do. I mean, because she knows who she has to be. She knows who she is as the New Yorker writer, right? Um, and- she comes back home and she's making fun of this hick, this Southern guy. And, and she's entertaining all of her friends. And when she goes to the bathroom and feels that betrayal, like, I don't really feel this way. I'm, 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 I'm expected to feel this way. And yeah, I love that idea. I love that scene for kind of showing that she's rooted in this cynicism where she's supposed to be like a keen observer of people, yeah, but also to not care about them in the slightest. But you see, like, when she gets into his van and she's just, like, smells funny. Yeah. Delusions of grandeur. Like, writing down all these kind of mean notes about him at this remove. Well, yeah, she is, you know, it's very typical to a romantic comedy. Oh, I hate you. I would never connect with you. And that moment in the bathroom, you know, she never says, like, I love you. Or, I mean, we can't count the third act because the third act is a whole different thing. But this, those little moments of seeing her wrestle with who she is. I mean, it's the same wrestle that that Charlie Kaufman has. Like, who am I? What am I trying to do? What am I trying to accomplish? And one of the most romantic parts of the movie to me is her calling him in mid-movie. And, you know, he's like, hey, Susie Q. And they start having this conversation that leads into why he doesn't have his teeth. What's mm-hmm. going on here? And that that story, which I totally forgot about, the way that the way that he is the way he is. And then you start to understand like why he moves on from fossils to plants to whatever. He he just- Yeah, fuck fish. Right. <laughs> I renounce fish. I vow to never set foot in the ocean again, which is true. That is what the real guy actually did. It, it truly to me is this really, it's subtle. I'm not saying that they're going to go off and be married, but I think what she finds with him is this genuineness, this connection to a person. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit critical of the world of the reporter being flung into a different world and being there as an observer. I think we deal with that a lot in documentary. Like, are we there to make fun of these people? Are we there to embrace these people? And 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 I think that what she is doing is she's connecting and caring. And in that connecting and caring that's a type of love. Whether or not it's like, this is the person she's meant to be with, I don't know. But there's a part of me that you want to see them together. I mean, you do you? He's like, he turns her into a person who's high all the time and wants to murder people. Like, to well, me, Well, she, she wants to murder people. Well, he doesn't want to. He brought her to a level where she feels like she has to murder. I mean, I, what, my I think you're taking part, a lot of power away from her to, by saying that. Well, yes and I mean, he's the one who gives her drugs in the beginning. Like He, he just gets, explains he to her why. Up. Your first hit of orchid pollen is free. I mean, come on. There's but, a little bit of that. I, I okay. think to, to, to the film's credit, what I like about John LaRoche is that he's kind of a scumbag. Every time you fall in love with him a little bit, the script reminds you, you know, maybe you should be keeping your distance. He has a beautiful speech when they're at um, the flower show. 
And he's talking about people finding their mate and like, you know, propagation and like going forth. There's a certain orchid looks exactly like a certain insect. So the insect is drawn to this flower. It's double, it's soulmate. And wants nothing more than to make love to it. After the insect flies off, spots another soulmate flower and makes love to it, thus pollinating it. And neither the flower nor the insect will ever understand the significance of their lovemaking. I mean, how could they know that because of their little dance, the world lives, but it does, by simply doing what they're designed to do, something large and magnificent happens. In this sense, they show us how to live, how the only barometer you have is your heart. How, when you spot your flower, you can't let anything get in your way. And like, that's that scene where you have this pivot on him and you're like, oh, he's a poet. He's a poet. Look at him. He's so beautiful. He's like, he he's like in touch with the natural world. And then an hour later, he's like operating a porn, porn site and being like, can't believe people pay to see these bitches, essentially. Like, he's everything. He's not right. just this romantic soul. I think if he was more of a like, I don't know, Last of the Mohicans character or something, it would be a worse film. But I like that he's so scuzzy. Yeah, me too. But I'm saying... What I think is so interesting about that is we are used to seeing an archetype of like what romance should be. Like she should fall in love with this rugged guy that all of a sudden, you know, oh, our worlds are different, but he's perfect. No, people aren't perfect. Like, and it, and it might be true. (laughs) It might be true to the world. You know, I don't know how. I mean, there's imperfect and then there's running a porn site. Right. But I mean, he's, (laughs) but there's also like running a porn site for money versus like exploiting People And I feel like there is like this funny nature to him where he just feels like I'm going to make money doing this now. Like he doesn't it seems good natured in a way like I don't know why. Like, yes, I know it's exploitative, but there is something about it that he doesn't seem to be. It seems like he's just getting naked pictures off the internet, then loading them up and charging people to look at them on his site. I mean, or like, or at least that's my thought of it. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I guess, I guess what I think about it is it's an unvarnished picture of this person. And just because he does that, does that mean that their connection isn't strong? Because that was at the same desk he's talking about when he's talking about losing his wife. And it's the same, uh, you know, it's the same place that he's at where you understand you know, why I think he does everything that he does. Well, I think if Kaufman's goal was to write a movie that reflects real life, LaRoche is to me one of the most fascinating real life characters I've seen mm-hmm. because he actually is a real person who actually did all of these things. Well, so is Susan Orlean. I mean, well, right, but Susan didn't do all these things. John actually did most of this stuff, which I okay. think is really interesting. So he did run a he porn actually, site. Yeah, actually, this is from Susan Orlean writing about John. John said he went into porn because, quote, the thing is, the internet is cool. It's not going to die on me like some plant. Well, there you go. I mean, that's his whole thing. He's like running that all the time. <laughs> Apparently, John also told Susan Orlean after he read The Orchid Thief, he said, you know, if you write a couple more books, you could turn into a pretty good writer. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Which, by the way, speaking of Susan Orlean and like her genius in her articles being turned into movies, you know that she wrote the article Surf Girls of Maui that became Blue Crush. Same year as this. Oh, wow. It was a big it was a big year for Susan Orlean. Oh, and did you know, by the way, now I'm just like dropping some Susan Orlean facts. Mm-hmm. Did you know that Susan Orlean had only one other brush with Hollywood, mm-hmm. which is in the 70s, she was an extra for one film, and that film was The Deer Hunter with Meryl Streep. 
Oh, wow. No, I didn't. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that wild? They actually talked about putting her in this film. They had like several ideas of how to put Susan herself in as a cameo. She was originally thinking about being the Judy Greer character, the waitress. And oh, I think wow. the reason that they cast Judy Greer is because Judy Greer has kind of some resemblance to Susan Orlean, who's like a gorgeous redhead. Um, then they thought that she would be like a woman who was in the grocery store where Charlie Kaufman was shopping. And he would look at this woman and then this woman would look at her friend and they would start gossiping. And he would start going down this tailspin of like how this woman was talking about him behind his back and stuff. So whatever she was going to do in this movie was going to be a way to make him extra nervous. <laughs> I think he's, I think my favorite part of the movie actually is just John LaRoche. Like even more than all of the Kaufman stuff mm-hmm. and like the neuroses and like, here's how Hollywood works and blah, 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 blah. To put this man on screen who's so complicated and so passionate and I love him and I hate him. And I think he's just played masterfully by Chris Cooper, who does wind up winning the best supporting actor for this. And also not sure how to play him. Apparently, like he told Spike Jones, like, I need to do this on different levels. So we can see like how much is too much, how much is not enough. So it is a process where he is, I think, testing things out on set. And you get this really interesting performance that at moments is, and I think again, to the point, like that has levels and yeah. layers. It's not just a- Yeah, he doesn't feel consistent because right. people aren't consistent. Right. And what I love about him at the center of this, I mean, to me, the movie kind of feels like all of these series of like rings, right? Mm-hmm. We have like the outer ring, which is like the Tilda ring, just like right. we have this property figured out. And then the Kaufman ring right inside it, like, I don't know, I'm looking at the Susan Orlean book and what do I do? And then the Susan ring where she's looking at him and being like, what is my story? And he's this guy at the center who has so much like life and so many things that are interesting about him that the whole movie is just about people trying to capture who this guy is, you know? Yeah. And like him kind of looking around and like how different it is, like that Susan is able to write a beautiful like little stanza about him where, you know, she describes him as like skinny, skinny as a stick, pale eyed, slouch shouldered and sharply handsome in spite of the fact, despite of the fact that he's missing all his front teeth. Her next sentence is he has the posture of El Dante Spaghetti and the nervous intensity of somebody who plays a lot of video games. That's what she writes in her actual column. And then to see it a step removed to see Charlie just call him a skinny man with no front teeth. It's like right. this impossibility of capturing this amazing guy at the center. Well, what isn't, isn't that about Charlie Kaufman feeling like capturing himself though too? Like there's something about only Charlie Kaufman could bring this character to life because he is as complicated as that character. Yeah. You know, he, he can, he has those same things and, you know, it like, and that's why he makes himself bald or that's why he makes himself fat or that's, you know, it's like he, in a way you know, he's writing himself the way that maybe, and again, I know that there are not all these true things about how he looks, but how people might describe him and trying to show that there's humanity behind this, oh, this squirrely, skinny, whatever, (laughs) however you might describe Charlie Kaufman. Like, uh, and he's doing, I think he's, part of it is him, I think taking care of that character only Charlie Kaufman could write a character like that, not in an exploitative way. Well, yeah. And he gives John a minute to kind of fight back because like as much as this John guy kind of paints himself as like, I'm the genius of the world. I'm smart. I'm competent. I can do anything. We see him fail. Like he takes Mm -hmm. Susan into the swamp. He can't figure out their way out. He's trying to make a sundial when there's not even any sun anywhere and he can't even get the stick to to stand up straight. And so all of the insecurities that, like, Charlie feels that he tries to, like, wrestle with and he feels are, like, subsuming him and only if he could be more raw and natural 
in that scene in the swamp where John is failing, he has all of those insecurities too. It's just he projects them outward and he starts screaming as we hear him here at Meryl Streep that she just needs to get a life. That all these people are like parasitically living off him the way these orchids are living off of trees. You're just like everybody else, fucking leeches. You just attach yourself to me and suck me dry, spit me out. You know, why don't you get your own fucking life, your own fucking interest? Fucking spoiled bitch. So I don't know. I, there's something in this I think is interesting, like that it's almost saying there's only a few people in this world worth telling a story about. But even Susan couldn't figure out how to tell a whole book about this guy. Well, I think it's also the idea that we all are our own magicians, right? We all present something. And then there'll be a moment where the show is over. You can't like, you know, um, a real magician can do amazing feats if properly prepared and in the right environment. A real Chris Angel. A real Chris Angel. Yeah. And... and, Sorry, uh, I was just listening to the episode of Podcast The Ride that was about I, uh, Chris Angel's, oh, I can't even say this out loud, I, no, Kablip? Kablip, Kablip. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very familiar with Chris Angel's restaurant <laughs> that uh, I was supposed to go on that trip, and we actually went on Human Giant. We we did things in that show as the Illusionators, who were a parody of Chris mm-hmm. Angel, that Chris Angel has now done for real, <laughs> which blows my mind. We had a restaurant called Illusion Eaters. He has a restaurant now, Kablip. Uh, Chris he, Angel's breakfast, lunch, and pizza. Yes. And we also had something really awful happen to him on stage. We did almost verbatim the same bit that he did. It's really <laughs> wild. But anyway, um, but I, I guess bet, what I'm I saying is Chris like- Angel has so, like Knights of the Soul like Charlie Kaufman uh, does. Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe. Who am I? Should I still be wearing these spangled jeans? I remember Chris Angel he was working at a Madison Square Garden after a Madison Scare Garden and he would be the final 15 minutes. Um, so here's what I'll say. That magicians, you know, if they aren't properly in the right environment, they can't be magicians because they're not, they're not warlocks. They're not, they don't have magical powers, right? And that's what, that's what happens to Chris Cooper's character. Like, he can sell these stories. He can be a smooth guy. You know, he could do all these moments when he has all the right facilities. But that moment, he's he he has to show himself too. Like no one is Indiana Jones, right? Like you know, you're gonna have these ups and downs. So I think that that's interesting. You know, I also think it's really interesting that it's just luck that it was Chris Cooper because Joaquin Phoenix was supposed to do this part and he took himself out of the running. It was oh, in the fi- yeah, final meetings with Spike Jones and he's like I'm not right for this part and he's so not right for this part in my mind. At 2002, Joaquin Phoenix seems way too young yeah, to be that. Young. To have had so many lives. Yeah, and 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 uh and Chris Cooper seems so Perfect. I mean, that's also just an, a, a you know chance at great casting. I mean, but I was really interested. I was like, wow, Spike Jones took Joaquin all the way, you know, to the end. It just it and not that he couldn't do it. I mean, I think Joaquin Phoenix is a great actor. It's just like it's just uh, that Chris Cooper feels to me. He's got the look. It's just a different. He's exactly right. Yeah. he is. He it does have like the posture of al dente spaghetti. <laughs> just going back to like the main thrust of this, you know. What like so? I told you like I really connect with Charlie Kaufman. Do you now? Like I thought like oh this is like this is the universal truth of this movie that everyone feels this way. Or do you look at it and go like 
this guy is this way or how do you as oh, no. a writer I, yeah I connect with him completely I just thought you were happier than me <laughs> no no I mean but that no, is, like sitting there at your desk and be and distracting yourself with nine million thoughts and then I sit there and I'm like what if I took up this why don't I learn my Spanish what's wrong with me like yeah. I come up with a whole alternate histories of how I could live my life because I don't want to sit down and write my book no there there are so many things that the self-doubt and I think there's something really beautiful about this movie because in many respects, I think the the hardest thing about self-doubt and critical thinking is it can lock you in uh, in a box, right? It can put you in a box that you can't get out of. And I feel like we're constantly watching Charlie Kaufman trying to get out of that box, whether that is with someone he's dating, somebody he's interested in, trying to write this, but not write it in a cliche way, trying to connect to people on set. And his brother has an easy time at it because he's not critical of himself. He can meet everybody on set. He starts dating Maggie Gyllenhaal, which also blew my mind that she was in it. I forgot she was in it. And it's crazy (laughs) that she's in such a small part. Uh, And, you know, you see him navigate the world better. I think one, like, personal, but I'll say it. Like, I think, like, one year for, um, like, New Year's, I was like, oh, you know, sometimes I just wish I'd be more naive, right? Because... There's a way that you can game the system. You can be like, well, I'm going to protect myself. I won't get hurt by this. I won't do this. And and I think this movie is arguing for that. It's just like arguing to, why does it have to be so hard? Why do you have to put up all these things? Why do you have to be so critical of yourself? Because it's not only like people don't recognize it, but you don't even get any credit for it, right? Like there's no credit given. Now, yeah. granted, yeah, people- Yeah, Tilda's still saying, I'd love to be in your head. And you're like, no, it's miserable. It's miserable. Yeah. But it's weird because I'm, I think I'm very self-critical and I've always told myself that that's great because I feel like the world hasn't been hard enough on me. So I'm right. like, I've got to do it. And I thought it kept me in balance. And now I'm wondering if that's a problem. Like, because, d- you know, I like when I was a kid, I never did homework. I was like, who needs it? And I was fine. Right. And I think there's something in me that's like, you skated by too much. Like someone has to crack the whip on you. And so it's me. That's interesting. Because I always feel like if I'm able to get to myself at a critical place, I won't be surprised by it if someone else comes at it. Like I can, I can, uh, I can do the damage before I hear it from somebody. <laughs> so you know what I'm saying? It's like if I punch myself in the face, right. it won't hurt to get punched in the face because I know what it feels like to get punched in the face. You know, and that's and and I think all these things are uh, these ways to protect ourselves from from doing exactly like this movie is made because at one point. Charlie Kaufman, who has this idea, like when he gets the script during the middle of Malkovich, he's having a hard time trying to figure yeah. out the real Charlie Kaufman. And it's it's shown here. And I love how the movie opens in footage of being John Malkovich, real footage. Um, I actually redid. They had to redo it. They had to rebuild that, the set. Yeah. Wait, that moment with John Malkovich when he's telling everyone to be quiet? I, I Oh, wait. That I think that, that be- I think that is from that is a documentary of the film and then the re then the rebuilding of the set. Oh right. Yes. Okay, right. When you see Catherine Keener climb up the stairs and yes. you think that's a rebuild. Yeah, because right. when they cut to Nicolas Cage in that scene, it's clearly a not yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like it's it's the same type of film, but it's not gotcha. it's not on set. Okay, um, that makes sense. Because I like heard they had to rebuild it and like get John Cusack back, but that would make more sense then. They didn't say they got John Malkovich back, which yeah, would be a lot no, I think harder. that was like a, from a documentary. Well, then good yeah, for John Malkovich taking care of like all the people no, wearing his great, rubber the, outfits. The great, the, well, the great actors are so cognizant yeah. of that. I and mean, what also makes that interesting is like 
this being John Malkovich is presented an adaptation almost like a classic, mm-hmm. you know, and it was really their first film and this is only their second. So it well, hasn't had time to even become like a classic. I know, but it also like it's like an Easter, it's an Easter egg for those who know. And if you've never seen Malkovich, it just seems weird. It just seems like, okay, well, I'm telling you like that's a big actor. You're seeing these things. And, yeah. but I guess what I, what I was going to with this is like, he has to, get out of his way to make this movie, right? Like he can't, like this movie is him dealing with writer's block and him worrying about a follow-up, right? Like, cause that is what this is. And, uh, and what is he going to do? And he wants to be as original. I think when you make a movie like being John Malkovich, you want to be like, well, how can I tell a more original story? And that's like, it's a very, I would imagine the pressure is on because he's only starting to climb his way into any sort of fame. Like, he's right. been tooling around for a long time. This is a guy who was writing spec scripts for Married with Children that never got made. He wrote one called Al's Well That Ends Al, and I would just love to read that. Well, I, I mean, I I was so at much. a taping of the Dana Carvey sketch show that he was a writer for, which has one of the best, you know, writing uh, staffs of all time. And that's a whole other thing you can get involved with. But there's a great great documentary called uh, Too Funny to Fail. It's a whole Dana Carvey show documentary about this cast. I mean, this cast <laughs> of not actors, but like uh, this this writer's room that is uh, one of the most insane writer's rooms uh, you would ever uh, possibly oh, put together. That's so wild. Yeah. yeah, like he he needs this. Like he's so unfamous when he starts working on adaptation that when they tell Susan Orlean like, oh, this is who's writing your movie. She's never heard of the guy. They get the title wrong, right? Like, listen to this. They said to me, oh, we've got this great young screenwriter, Charlie Kaufman. He just finished a movie called Killing John Malkovich. And, of course, that was the wrong title. But I thought Killing John Malkovich must be some one of those, like, Saw or Halloween. And I thought, I don't get it. So it's weird. Like, I think if he made Adaptation today... Right now, being the Kaufman that we know with a character called Kaufman, we'd be like, oh, get over yourself. Who are you? It, there, there'd be like, I think, an, an irritation to it. Mm-hmm. But the audacity to do this when he's not really famous yet, I kind of love that. Like if somebody's like, you're going to care about me. You're going to care about me. And I'm played by Nicolas Cage. But also, I don't care about me. So it keeps it from feeling too egotistical. Well, because it's not like I've talked to so many people like who will pitch me an idea for a show. It's like, all right. I want to do my curb. And the truth is, that's a crazy thing to fucking say. Because all that means is you think that your life is so interesting, like that you are the main character. Like we all are the main characters in our own lives. But like Curb is done by arguably one of the best comedy writers of all time, right? Who has a most, one of the most distinctive points of view. Um, who was willing to lend his point of view out for much of his career until he got older. And and you can't just say that, well, that just translates to anything. Like, look, and obviously there's a lot of success with that. Like the Kardashians, I would argue, are on the other side of that spectrum. They have lent out their life. And it's not comedic, but I think a lot of people think, oh, I just want to take me going to the store and that's going to be funny. I'm going to take the... So, but what this, I think, attacks more and why I think it works and why it's not like as navel-gazy as it could possibly be is... We don't know the world of writers. This is not a glamorous world. This is not, this is a little bit of, oh, wow. Like this is as interesting as what Chris uh, Cooper does in the movie, what John LaRoche does, because it is, it's not like, oh, I'm a celebrity dealing with being a celebrity and I hate being famous or whatever the issue is. It, it is, 
to most people, I don't think they even understand like how you would, how you even would get a movie or how you adapt a thing or how you go about it. And I also think it is the self, I think it does capture a universal, and that's why I was asking you, like a universal self-doubt that we all have. Like, how do we move forward? And, and are we all thinking like, oh, I shouldn't take a shortcut. I shouldn't do this. I, and, and why we sometimes don't take the hands that are, you know, offered out to us. There's, I mean, that, that Robert McKee lecture is a big, Robert McKee is a big part of this movie and he's not really um, in the movie for that much. He's in the movie for a very crucial point. And we, we, uh, we had Brian Cox on the show for his top three. He's great. And he's fantastic as Robert McKee and what a great reveal. But this idea that like, he will say that he cast him himself. Really? Yeah. That when they came to McKee, basically somebody was like, so there's this script in your character and they're using your copyrighted material and they're making fun of it. And they're talking about your 10 commandments. Is this okay? That Robert McKee said he would on a couple conditions. And one of them was that he would cast his own guy. And so, like, he kicked around a bunch of people. He was like, who is it going to be? Who is it going to be? Who is it going to be? Because this is a guy with a lot of clout. Mm -hmm. He's a guy who knows a lot of people. Like, here is a list of some of Robert McKee's, like, students that have been in his seminar. Are you ready for this? Mm -hmm. It's, like, crazy. David Bowie, John Cleese, Kirk Douglas, Faye Dunaway, Emilio Estevez, Andrew Stanton from Pixar, Quincy Jones, Peter Jackson, Diane Keaton, Mary Manilow, Joan Rivers, Julia Roberts, Meg Ryan, Joel Schumacher, Brooke Shields, Gloria Steinem. He can call anybody he wants at this point to like be who he is. And so he's like going through people in his head. He's thinking about Albert Finney. He's thinking about Christopher Plummer. He's thinking about Terrence Stamp. He's thinking about Michael Caine. And why he finally decided not to go with any of them is he felt like all of those actors had like a love me, he's called it, mm-hmm. character to their work. And he wanted to play um, a McKee that nobody loved. And like, it's funny. Somebody asked him once, like, well, does this represent you? And here's what he said. How accurate is that scene? Oh, I, I took my son to a screening and I asked my son what he thought. And he said, Dad, he nailed you. <laughs> I said, said, is that what it's like? Because I was empathizing with the writer, you know? I said, gosh, is that what it's like to be on the receiving end of me? And my son said, yes. I said, I would never want to be on the receiving end of me. But that said, like, what I think is funny about even just this McKee sequence to begin with is like, finally he goes to this seminar. He's sitting there. He's like paid money to like listen to this genius. And, like, the movie shows us that he's not even listening, that the whole time McKee is talking, he's just talking to himself, and his own neuroses are, like, even drowning right. out what he's hearing. Last, I, uh, what the fuck am I doing here? What the fuck am I doing here? Fuck. It is my weakness, my ultimate lack of conviction that brings me here. Easy answers, rules to shortcut yourself to success. And here I am, because my jaunt into the abyss brought me nothing. Well, isn't that just the risk one takes for attempting something new? I should leave here right now. I'll start over. I need to face this project head on. And God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. Any idiot can write voiceover narration to explain the thoughts of a character. Okay, that's it. One hour for lunch. Yeah, it's interesting because, look, it does make fun of McKee, but at the same time, it's the devil and the angel on your shoulder, right? Because everything that his brother says is defending it. And Charlie, like, and the idea, I think, that's the through line of it is Charlie's like, I want to buck convention. I want to buck trends. And and I want to do something so different. And what McKee is saying is make your genre interesting, make your world interesting, but you still have to commit to 
the goals of storytelling and that that kind of head to head moment that they have when they sit down is him wrestling, I think, with McKee, like him going like, yeah, do all the things that you want. You just still have to tell the tenant of story. Like you don't have to make it. It's like story isn't formulaic. Story is, I mean, I'm now sounding like Donald, but it's like story is structure, you know, formula, you know, like you can make something complete. This movie has, I think, story structure. It may not be a formulaic story, but it's got story structure. Yeah, but at the same time, what I think is, like, it feels like another even level underneath that, too, is that when McKee yells at him, when when Kaufman says he wants to do something like real life and real life isn't dramatic, you get this, like, crazy monologue from McKee right here. You write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. Secondly, nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? People are murdered every day. There's... Genocide, war, corruption, every fucking day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every fucking day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love, people lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find that stuff in life, then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. And why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? I mean, and honestly, when you hear of what he's listing as the real world, it's all just like over-the-top, gigantic, negative stuff that, yeah, like, sure, it happens, but it's like still not kind of real world. Like, that's not even his own world. And, it, and I find that kind of like all the movies he's describing sound like boring movies. I don't want to see the movies he's describing either because I feel like I've seen all of those like dramatic real world stuff. And like just because something is kind of happening, does that make it interesting? I mean, to me, I feel like this movie winds up being like to the McKee seminar process, what Sideways is to Merlot. Fair or not? Because I think Merlot is actually a wonderful wine. And I feel very bad that like Merlot got screwed over by Sideways. But I do think it kind of makes a joke of the whole thing to the point that I wonder like what the effect was. Did it make him... Tons more popular, or did it make him kind of a joke? I, I think, look, he clearly is still around. He's 81 years old. He's making these things. There's anything can be used in the right and wrong hands, right? It, it It's sort of like, I think of it, like, I think about it like dieting. Like, is dieting bad? No. You know, if you want to lose weight, you want to do your thing. But is like, if you're like, I'm now... Uh, Atkins and I'm just going to eat this. And, you know, it's like you can, you can warp anything to make it bad and you can also turn it to make it good. Like the, the idea of like the journey of the hero, you know, Dan, Dan Harmon, you know, swears by this and talks about like this idea of, you know, everything has to, you know, work on this circular level and that's Rick and Morty episodes and that's community episodes. Um, and I would argue that Dan Harmon is viewed as one of the most interesting storytellers that are out there. Like, I think it's like a respect for the genre. Like you can't like, you can't say like I'm writing a book and then not put anything in the book. Like you have to, I think that boundaries are always really good to help you, to help under, people understand what, what they're getting into. Like I think, and it's about how can you subvert those, but also I think keep an emotional through line. And I think McKee says that they hold that, that scene with him is like, we have to care. Like we have to care. There's still reasons we have to care. We have to change. Like life does happen. Like this idea of like this 
I don't know. I think that the idea, and this is where going back to what we said in the beginning, like Charlie Kaufman, I think wants to be in more of that verite. Like, I just want to, I want you to see this sadness, this loneliness, this feeling. And I think Spike Jones is like, yes. And like, how does it actually fit in the world that we live in? Like how, you know, can we take that out and, and make it like, a little bit more universal. I think that like, this 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 is why this movie, and as dark as it is, and it is dark, is more successful than Synecdoche because Synecdoche Synecdoche is. I and again, I love that movie. I love that movie. It is one of the top. I will maybe now say three greatest movies ever made because I'm leaving space for me to leave everything. Ever. I thought you were going to say I'm leaving there. space balls on the. Uh, the wow. <laughs> all right. Uh, no, but no, my top two movies ever made, Synecdoche, New York, and Pennies from Heaven, are now leaving space for me to sit on it and see if I want to put everything up there. Okay. Tied as the Holy Trinity. Is there such a thing as a traveler, not a Delta? Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This is all about wrestling with who are we? Are we the person who can defy conventions, but play within conventions. Like this is Charlie Kaufman making a major movie. Like he didn't think this movie was going to go. He didn't, he had an idea for what he wanted to do with the adaptation. He's like, I'm not even going to pitch it. I'm just going to give it to them. And, uh, and the studio gets so excited. They're like, let's fast track it. And they start to yeah. fast track this movie and, and it's going, it's going. After like, getting Susan Orlean so drunk that she agrees to it. Finally, wow. they had to take her to lunch and they were like, here, Susan, have a cocktail. Then you can read the script. Actually, let's have some wine. Actually, wow. let's have an after-dinner drink. They, like, plied her with alcohol before they, they broke the news. It was very funny. But to me, it just seems like it is about, you know, I think Robert McKee is there to be, like, the fact that Robert McKee provides the answer to the movie. Like, he does have to go to Robert McKee to finish the movie. Like, in the meta world of this movie, Without that Robert McKee beat, you don't have the ending. You don't have that idea that I need to do this. Well, actually, without Robert McKee, you don't have this ending at all. Because that was his second demand before he let them use their stuff. Was He was like, actually, I don't like the ending of the script that you've sent me. I demand that I get to help reshape it. Talk about this, how this came to be in this movie with you. Well, I was sitting in my office one day and the phone rings and it's this producer from New York. And he's, he said, this is the most embarrassing phone call I've ever had to make. He said, there's this crazy writer, Charlie Kaufman, who's written a script. He's made you a character in it. He's freely copied from your book and your lectures without copyright permission. We don't know what to do. I said, well, send me a copy. Mm -hmm. So I read the screenplay and I saw it was wonderful. It had third act problems, but I saw what he needed. He needed somebody to push up against. He needed my character to represent um, 
everything that he was against in terms of wanting to be an artist in, a, in, a, in the commercial world of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I said, I know I'm a controversial figure, so fine, we'll play with that. And I said, we get some laughs. I said, I'll do anything for a laugh. <laughs> I said, but I want my redeeming scene, mm -hmm. and I want uh, a say in the casting, and I want us to fix act three because I can't be a character in a bad movie. <laughs> and so, How'd they take that? Uh, they, 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 no, they listened because they knew they had Act 3 problems. Yeah. And so uh, I sat down with Charlie and Spike, the director, for many meetings and went over the notes. And we, uh, they reworked Act 3 accordingly and uh, the rest was history. Yeah, I, which I think is fascinating that McKee actually might have written this because I will say probably my least favorite bit of this movie is the ending. I don't love oh, it. I love it. It's like just a lot of kind of generic action. You've got that like generic thriller music they put in right here. I don't but love that, it. But that's the, that's the thing. That's the meta. It's so meta that I don't find it that interesting. It's like uh, almost too deadpan. I'm like, whatever. But, but like, what but he did, in that, but but do you okay. want to know what happened in his earlier draft? Sure. Yeah? Okay. So in his earlier draft... He exaggerates things more. Like, Kaufman makes Donald even more of a hero. Like, in this ending fight, Donald grabs an alligator and, like, cuts off its head himself. Like, cuts off the alligator's head. And then he, like, turns to Charlie and he goes, you've got a fucking awesome third act. And then, like, Susan Orlean starts, like, fighting with, with Charlie and she's, like, about to kill him. And Charlie says to Susan something that I think probably feels like the underpinning of so much of the emotion in this book. He's like, I just wish you would write a description of me as nice as the one that you wrote for John, as nice as that the al dente spaghetti. But she can't do it, and she tries to kill him, and then Donald pops back up when you think he's dead, and then he kills Susan. And then you get this whole message that this movie is about how you have to learn to love yourself before you can love anything. I think that that movie that you just described undercuts why do the you? third act— Yes, because— You don't want to see Susan Orlean die? No, because I think what that does is it makes it too meta. Like, there's something really interesting about riding the line tonally. Like, it almost like, it, and this is where we're going back to, like, the emotionality of it. Like, that's a funny ending. That's a very sketch comedy, big, like, oh, yeah. And, and what you get in this other version of it is, like, I think it breaks, I think it bend it, don't break it, right? That idea of, like, and I think that that ending bends it and breaks it. Because when Donald dies... It means something. When you see Meryl Streep unraveling, that means something, why it means something, why she is afraid. It there are stakes, there are characters. And with and to me, the whole movie I think leads up to this one moment. Well, how come you were so happy? I love Sarah Charles. It was mine. That love. I owned it. And Sarah didn't have the right to take it away. I can love whoever I want. She thought you were pathetic. <laughs> that was her business, not mine. You are what you love, not what loves you. You don't have that moment in what you just described. There's no room for that moment. This mo that moment to me is, is the whole, is the whole, the whole thing. 
I mean, it's there. It's there. It's there. But it's like there's bigger stuff around it. But that that to me, I think like these moments where they actually are afraid. Like I'm afraid of Meryl Streep in that thing. Like Meryl Streep is like a drug addict who has lost her mind. And seeing Chris Cooper wrestle with the idea of picking up a rifle and trying to kill them. And yes, the alligator is a crazy moment. Uh-huh. And but that like that crazy the love story of the decade, according to Paul Shear. I, I look, I love it. But I mean, when that <laughs> alligator comes and gets them, like holy shit! And that's a and that's. The Deus right about Ex Machina the, that they're making fun of. Yes, but that but you're talking about a third act that's all Deus Ex Machina. There's also like a giant swamp creature in the original one. That's Just what I'm like saying. Like this, like this like is swamp man kills. John. Like it's this is clever enough not to take you out of it because it still gives you this like through line where you're like the stakes were raised and only in that moment. Like you need to see them bond. Like you like that's. But the, you're still seeing them bond. I just think. I think when it gets more actiony, it becomes everything he didn't want it to be. But I that's what you're describing, I, though. I know, but I think like I like his giant action more than I like the normal action. I think the normal action is kind of boring in the film. I, I would prefer a giant Kaufman-esque action spectacular than to like the sort of granular one that I think McKee maybe put on it more. I don't know. It, I mean, like, I think yeah. they're almost proving. I think the ending almost proves why everything that he was rebelling against didn't work. You know, like, why you don't want to do this kind of movie? Because it's hard for me. I really have a really hard time caring about, like, the last half hour of this film. Really? If, yeah. To me, that's, like, that to me is the whole, I mean, that that scene you just played, that that, that love scene, like. That, that scene's great. That scene's great. But everything but, else. All the action stuff, I'm like, eh. But, I mean, talk about, like, I mean, there's, look, we're talking about, you know, this moment. Where I love when Chris Cooper is like, you're going to put me in the movie? Who's going to play me? Like this idea, like, you know, like even he, this person doesn't care, probably hasn't even watched movies, like is like now interested. He's naked. Like there's so many great little moments there that are kind of uncovering this. But why I think the movie works is that final scene with Charlie and his girlfriend at that mall, you know, outdoor mall in Los Angeles. And he's got a great third act and he goes in his car and drives away like that still to me, like the movie takes like a 10 minute detour to do the traditional Hollywood movie, but it still ends in the Charlie Kaufman ending. I mean, it still gives you that, that moment, like the car driving off and, and him going, I have the flowers and the flowers. flowers. I have to go right home. I know how to finish the script now. It ends with Kaufman driving home after his lunch with Amelia, thinking he knows how to finish the script. Shit. That's voiceover. McKee would not approve. How else can I show his thoughts? I don't know. Oh, who cares what McKee says? It feels right. Conclusive. I wonder who's going to play me. Someone not too fat. I like that Gerard Depardieu, but can he not do the accent? Anyway, it's done. And that's something. So, Kaufman drives off from his encounter with Amelia filled for the first time with hope. I like this. This is good. The beauty of the flowers in front of Kaiser Permanente on Sunset in (laughs) Hollywood. Uh, But there, yeah, to me there is something, I think if you make that ending so meta, you miss out on the idea of saying, can't you do a little bit of both? And I would argue Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind is the product of this movie. I think it is saying, 
I can do something as inventive and interesting that has a core center that is emotionally fulfilling and it follows beats and I can, it can subvert the expectations. It can be a love story that doesn't end positively, but it can also be a story about how to get through breakup and, and people have tried to do that and it doesn't really work. And he does that. And it's like, that movie is the distillation of this movie's thesis. And, you know, it's a, that's, that's how I, that's how I kind of look at it. I do too. And then I think that Synecdoche is just the masterpiece of all of it. But I love them all. I mean, I love Eternal Sunshine. Yeah. I love Eternal Sunshine. But I will say this. I think one of my favorite things that they do with the character of like Donald in this, the guy who represents all of the movies that, you know, Charlie doesn't think he wants to make. I appreciate that Donald himself is like sweet and naive and and hopeful. And he looks up to Charlie. He's like the only person who calls Charlie Charles. I think Charlie actually does really good stuff in the script. Where just the way the names that people use for each other tell you so much about the character themselves. The idea that John is always calling Susan Susie Q. Yeah. And like that's something Charlie Kaufman himself could have never done in person. I, I He just is so detailed in that kind of way. But I love that Donald is not some sort of cynical hack. Because I feel like that would be the easier way of writing Donald. He's like yes. doing Garfield 6. And he's like, just put in some car chases. Bada bing, bada boom. You know, like a real cornball. I love that he finds the sweetness of Donald and puts that center. Well, that's that line. Like, I love, like, he lo- like he wants to make these movies. Like, he, like, I have an issue with this idea that any creator is so cynical that they're creating something shitty, right? Like, I was reading this response to somebody, somebody was talking about, you know, why is there a hatred to Shrek and, and why is the popularity? Because we this Shrek thing has been really interesting than we did on the he show. He has risen. Uh, he has risen, uh, which is, uh, I put on my Instagram there. The um, And someone was saying like, oh, I think the reason why like Garfield and Shrek are used so much in shit posting like online is because it's such a cynical point of view. Like the, and, and I was thinking about this. I'm like, I don't think, you know, Jim Davis he may not be like the most astute, uh, you know, writer of the human condition, but Jim, you know, but he, he is, you know, he's, I don't think he's approaching Garfield by going like, ah, fuck it. I'm going to give these people whatever they want. Like but there's a, got ju- a Kaufman-esque beauty to it too, that he's yeah. doing a comic strip about a man like himself in his relationship with his, I love he's it. investing himself in his work. Oh, yes. And I will be honest. I think. Garfield minus Garfield, mm-hmm. where it's where you realize that it's just John talking to himself, that it's a story of a man lonely in his own house without Garfield's response, mm-hmm. talking to his cat, a thing I, I can relate to quite deeply. I think, honestly, it, it brings a tear to my eye, some of those panels. Well, that, but, yeah, and I, I, that's all I'm saying is like this idea that anyone is creating something in such a cynical way to just make money. Those people I don't think are successful. There might be people, there might be producers, there might be studios who go, hey, we're going to put this face on the poster and this is going to get us money. And you know what? Who cares? It's got this and it will work. Right. I think that there are definitely. I mean, I think producers can be cynical, but I I think artists are not. That's that. And that's what I was going to get to. I think that the business can be cynical. I think that. But I think when you're creating something, you. I really do believe it's hard to create something that you don't give a fuck about like and it may come across and it may people may people people might think it's lame or not cool but this idea of a cynical creator it's like well, why do it there's there's enough other elements there and and you have to live with this stuff and work with this stuff like i get the idea like oh i might not want to do this but 
I think when you're writing something and you're in it, you make like, yourself fall in love. You yes. Do. Or, or you say no. Like Kaufman right. does being John Malkovich. He says everybody just wants to send him these like comedy sci-fi books. And he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. Like he's looking for something that'll stir his soul like adaptation. Something that stirs you enough that you feel like you have to do it. It's the producer end. The tilde of it who can't think of anything original to say besides John LaRoche is a really interesting character. And boy, do you have a unique voice. And she says the same thing to Kaufman in the movie that she says to Susan Orlean. The, it's the producer who has no insight. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's not all, but yes, but yeah, I agree. Well, yeah, there and, are good producers. And, and and I guess what I'm thinking is why Donald is so interesting and what makes Charlie so interesting in this movie is that he's able to write the idea that Donald is just a fan. He may not, they might have, not have the same sensibilities. He might not like the same things, but he's genuine in what he wants to do. Like he loves this idea. Like, and he is open to feedback and he is willing to expose himself. He takes chances. He talks to, uh, you know, a girl, he lets his, you know, he lets people read his script. He takes notes. He engages people. He makes them feel like, you know, I, I can say that how many times you can go, Oh, I, it's not ready or it's not this. You, you try to hide behind it as if someone's always trying to like find you out. I do think that the, the end that I would have liked to have seen is, um, in the, uh, there was going to be a, a, a bit of the three shown at the very end of the credits of the movie. Did you hear about this? Uh-uh. All right. So um, it was going to be like, so there was a, a scene that was written but not shot. Um, and it said that it reads like this. We're all one thing, Lieutenant. That's what I've come to realize. Like cells in a body, except we can't see the body. The way fish can't see the ocean. And we envy each other, hurt each other, hate each other. How silly is that? A heart cell hating a lung cell and that's cassie from the three that's her line uh, and uh It'll be played by maggie gyllenhaal and they said that this is the theory that claims that this this is maybe what the whole movie is about the hidden meaning of the film you know that donald susan and charlie are the three they well, yeah yeah that's what i want to ask you about because there's that scene when when donald who by the way as a character like stretches back beyond this movie like mm -hmm. he Charlie Kaufman included Donald in the press notes for being John Malkovich. He invented this twin and he, well, invented, who knows. But he says in the production notes that, like, Charlie ma mailed his script to for Malkovich to his brother Donald. Donald was serving in the Gulf War at the time. And one of Donald's platoon mates in the Gulf War was friends with Spike Jones and sent his script to Spike Jones. And that was Charlie Kaufman's whole story wow. for how being John Malkovich get made. So Donald has a long history. I love it. Um but there is that scene right after Donald pitches Charlie in the middle of the night about like his idea for the three, where Charlie tells him why a movie like this can't be made. I feel like in this conversation, they're just describing adaptation itself, all of the problems with this movie itself. And I feel like maybe there's something even more going on here. The other thing is, there's no way to write this. Did you consider that? I mean, how, how could you have somebody held prisoner in a basement and, and working in a police station at the same time? Trick photography. Okay, that's not what I'm asking. Listen closely. What I'm asking is, in the reality of this movie, where there's only one character, right? Okay? How could you... What, what exactly would... I agree with mom. Very taut. Sybil meets... I don't know. I want to float something at you. Yeah. In this whole movie, Charlie's been describing what he doesn't want to make, and it turns out to be what the movie is. In this scene, 
is he tipping his hand that maybe this whole movie is a movie just about one character? That this whole movie is only taking place inside of Charlie Kaufman's head? That we're just in his head, there is no Donald, that this is only a movie, like living in the world well, of the writer's neuroses. I know that he interacts with Donald a little bit, but very rarely do they interact with like another, like he interacts with Donald privately a lot, but you know, you don't really see him publicly with Donald. So I was, think, I was thinking yeah. about that. It's only that party where you get to see that moment. But but I wonder like if the whole thing is a fantasy because like you know well, this whole movie is like Charlie sliding into different fantasies of who's yes. having sex. It's with like Walter Mitty, yeah, out. yeah. What if because this movie starts on blackness where we're just hearing his thoughts? What if we just never leave his thoughts? What if this entire movie is just a fa- it, it is. is happening? I mean, it, it, this is this is, this is. I mean, I, I I agree with that, and I think what we're talking about, and we talked about this with Chris Cooper in the beginning. How are people presented? Like he is wrestling and i think it's like chris cooper like who is he versus how he's described who am i versus what people think i am who you know who should i be and yeah, I, I, almo- here I am being like you're this happy guy and you're like no i suffer these neuroses i almost feel like it because it's interesting i almost like if i if you want to keep the idea of the three i mean i would i expand it and say it's the four but i would say meryl streep is wrestling with the same kind of identity crisis as charlie as Chris Cooper, like, right. Chris Cooper and, and Donald are on this side, which are like, I am who I am. And that's, and I am fine with it. They've, and, and both Charlie and, uh, and Susan, Meryl Streep's character are trying to figure out who they want to be and how they present themselves. And that's the struggle, like in many ways, like, they, like, and they both have it. Like, so Meryl has her Donald and Chris Cooper and I think that Charlie has his his Donald and it's Donald, and it, and and that's the yin and yang that they're both kind of fighting against. So it's almost like two separate movies representing two journeys of these people that are like, be like me, be happy, just follow your heart, be passionate. Because she says like Susan Orleans, like I don't I don't think I have passion. I don't know if I find passion, and and Donald and 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 Donald represents the passion in Charlie's life, like. He's having so much fun writing a movie. He's going out. He's enjoying this thing. And 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 Charlie is not. He's hating every part of it. He should be enjoying all of his success, or at least feeling good about himself. And it and it just he he can't. And in in many ways, Donald has less to be happy about because he's never been nothing has been made. And Chris Cooper has less to be happy about because his life has been destroyed. But yet they are able to transcend. That's beautiful. And by the way, Susan sells herself a little short. She has admitted that she does have a passion for collecting two things, toothpaste and dice. Well, there you go. Um, Now, you said this movie was not a hit, but I imagine that critically this movie works for a lot of people. It did. It did. Lots of people adored this movie. This movie really kind of clicked with people. There's some people like Rex Reed who like just said it was a bunch of Zs. Really, the best criticism I found for it uh, comes from a blog. Um, a guy named Jeremy Hillman, who wrote a blog, blog called Movie Martyr, which he seems mm. to have stepped back from in 2012. But his uh, review of it that he read at the time, I thought was really sharp. So this is what he said. Adaptation is clearly an intelligent film, but it's intelligent in the worst way. It uses its smarts to build defenses instead of attempting to push closer towards genuine emotion. This failure becomes more most obvious in retrospect when the realization dawns that the most affecting, inventive, and honest moments of the film were those that hewed most closely to the original text which is a lot of the stuff that John says, which is actually is from the book. 
Even before the film begins indulging itself in cliches, the observation that it makes about Kaufman's struggle in his writing process seems as if it has been culled from the amalgamation of every neurotic writer to ever grace the screen. Adaptations' gambits might be more tolerable if they're at least self-deprecating in original ways, but it chooses shop-worn targets for attack time and again. He uses a typewriter, he's socially awkward, etc., etc., etc. For example, its criticisms of Hollywood's artless, commerce-driven mindset seem paradoxical, because this film's own existence proves that risk-taking still occurs in Hollywood, even if this risk doesn't exactly pay off. And yeah, I mean, sure, that's the point of view. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought it was smart. Jeremy Highland, I don't know why you're not still writing, but that was quite good. I love it. Um, all right, so we know where you where you stand on this movie. I think, you know, one of the things we haven't done that much, but I don't think we have to, like, go that much deeper because we've we've spent a lot of time here, is the Nicolas Cage of it all. It may not be your favorite uh, Charlie Kaufman, but is it, where does it fall for you? And, and obviously face off has a love. We have so much love for face off, but, but where do you fall on this? You know, what's interesting. I was realizing I was having a very hard time watching this film for the Nicolas Cage of it all. I almost never feel this way about a Nicolas Cage film where like, I can't see the cage, but there's something in Charlie as like meek and unassuming he is. As like timid as Susan Orlean describes him on the set of the film, which was the only time she really met him. I was watching Nicolas Cage in a scene, and there's this little guy standing over there. I thought, oh, you know, some, you know, one of the script supervisors or something. And I didn't give him much thought. He was shy, retiring, and, you know, little. And suddenly Nicolas Cage stops in the middle of the scene and he says, the real Charlie and the real Susan finally meet. And we look at each other. And Charlie said, hi. And I said, I'm really embarrassed. He said, not as embarrassed as I am. And he turned around and left. And I, I then didn't see him for um, at least a year. As meek as that guy sounds on paper and describes himself, I can't even see Nicolas Cage in this movie, weirdly. Because I only see Kaufman. There's something in the Kaufman brain where it's hard for me to see to even think of this as a Nicolas Cage movie. The same way that I have a hard time thinking about it as a Spike Jones movie. There's something almost like dictatorship control-wise of Kaufman. Maybe it's just my fascination. I no, have he with just him in gets general, I mean, well, this is an interesting I can't even see Cage in here, no matter how hard it's like I squint and I still really can't. Well, this is interesting because I think you could argue in many respects that's a problem that we have with Jim Carrey. And, and Eternal Sunshine, like we don't see the Jim Carrey that we know. It's a different Jim Carrey. Obviously, Jim Carrey has grown and done different things after that. But uh, he does have a, a way of um, blotting out the sun in mm -hmm. a way. You know, it's like it becomes something very unique. Nicolas Cage has said that he went against every one of his acting instincts to do this part. And I think in watching it, I see that. And I wonder... Yeah, it's such a quiet cage. Yes. Just, it's all posture, shoulders, hunching. Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, to our, what our exploration was, is like, is this the best cage? This might be one of the best movies that Nicolas Cage is in. And the performance is a masterful, beautiful performance. But I don't know if this is the performance that is the best Nicolas Cage performance. I would 100% agree with that. 
I mean, he gets nominated for best actor. For he this. should. He should. Like it's a, yeah. but it's like yeah. Who do you but, think he loses to? Uh, oh, I, I know the guy who stars in The Pianist. Yes, uh, yeah, Adrian Brody. Brody. Adrian so, Brody. Yeah. Oh, to bring it all the way back around to get that big time. kiss. Get that big kiss. <laughs> oh God. Um, with him and Halle Berry, uh, most uncomfortable weird moment. Uh, but yeah. uh, until recently. Yeah. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I mean, the yeah. it's interesting to hear Cage describe Kaufman, like what he wanted to bring to it. Well, my sense of Charlie Kaufman is that he's a brilliant artist who is very passionate about his craft and very loaded with um, self-doubt and um, uh, insecurities that compel him, I think, to really dig a little deeper and free himself. I think he uses his pressure, but this is just my interpretation, of course. To build the character, I did spend a lot of time with Charlie. I did interview him exhaustively, and uh, I think he was happy when that part of the process was over. Um, And I burned all the tapes out of respect to him, but Sometimes we would get in this paranoid place together, uh, I think, I could be wrong, where he would come to the set and I would see him scrutinizing me playing him and I would get uncomfortable and, and, and wouldn't want him there, you know. And then I would take him to lunch or dinner to scrutinize him to see what kind of moves I could get to put in the part. And then he would take like the menu and start flapping it under his um, arms like a chicken I thought okay are you messing with me now you think that that's going to wind up in the movie and it got very uh <laughs> it got very odd surreal I yeah imagine. it was very very it was it was one of the more bizarre experiences of my life yeah no I'd a thousand percent agree with you like it, this it, when I think of what is a cage performance I actually forget he's in this movie almost every single time it's bizarre to me like there's some sort of blot like he is the ghost orchid I can't even I he's in my imagination as being in this film but it's hard to think about it I guess what I would say is I don't think of Nicolas Cage as a method actor. I think that what he does, he's able to go into parts and be truthful in those parts. Um, But yet you always see like a glimmer of him. This movie really extinguishes the glimmer of him and just lets him do the acting. And and I think in that part. There is no glimmer in the eye ever. No. And, And even, and, and I think you create like, they're fantastic. And this is a weird thing to say, cause it's like, well, we're missing the persona. Right. Like, we're, like even Tom Cruise and Magnolia, where people go like, oh, that's one of the best Tom Cruise performances. Like it's you still see Tom Cruise like you still and and and, and uh, it's great acting. And, and I'm not saying anything about Tom Cruise, but like there is something here that Spike Jones And Nick Cage and Charlie Kaufman, I think all they all got out of the way for the story. And I think in a weird way, you have to you have to do it for this. Like you can't. You can't look at this movie and go, oh, that's Nick Cage playing a writer. You have to say, like, this is this character. It's like, it's the way that I think that people don't look at Bruno or Borat as Sasha Baron Cohen, right? Like, Bruno and Borat are great characters. But I don't think you go, oh, there's Sasha Baron Cohen. I I don't know Sasha Baron Cohen under there. I know Bruno. I know Borat. Or it's just Borat's a better example. But but I think there is something about that. Um, where he's so in that it's like, well, this is just, a tra- that's Charlie Kaufman. In a weird way, until you're telling me what Charlie Kaufman looks like, I think my go-to image is of Nick Cage in this movie. I wonder if this is the first time Nicolas Cage has even worn like a padded fat suit in a movie. It was interesting watching it because that padded fat suit looked so, um, I didn't realize it was a, a fat suit. And I was like, wow, like, it's it's so like it's such an odd fat like it's just like it's like because it's like his chest is like lumpy like it doesn't look it doesn't look bad it's just like but it's so like not uh, like 
uh, rubber tire fat like around your belly <laughs> instead of like fat. It's like it, it, it's almost more sad that kind of fat. It's, it's like you know, sad. it's like yeah. The hair is very sad. It's yeah. all very sad. Although at least Nicolas Cage had a chance to do the idea of double Nicolas Cage's and make it funny. Do you do you remember this little clip from Saturday Night Live when he was on Weekend Update where it's Andy Samberg as Cage as real oh, Cage yes. mm-hmm. and then Cage as second Cage? Yeah. Well, I'm looking at two identical <laughs> Nick Cages. Well, Seth, I can explain if you just calm down. I'm calm. Okay, as everyone knows. My dream as an actor is to appear in every film ever released. (laughs) However, until now, I've only been able to muster a measly 90%, bringing shame upon my dojo. Sure, of of course. But fortunately, today, science has prevailed, and I'm proud to announce that my cloning experiment has finally come to fruition. I'm sorry, cloning experiment? Uh, Well, that's exactly right, Seth. I am his clone. Oh, well, that does make sense, because you two are identical in every way. Not in every way, Seth. Well, while physically we are exactly the same, there are some slight differences personality-wise. Yes, for example, this Nick is calm and stealthy like a ninja warrior. Whereas this Nick is an exaggerated, screaming psychopath who really just doesn't exist. By the way, a connection between Kaufman and comedy. Do you know what one of Kaufman's major influences was as a child? No. Monty Python. He said that. that, but for an interesting reason, not just that Monty Python was funny, but he said that Monty Python presented chaos to him. And that it was the chaos of Monty Python that most influenced him as a child. Interesting. I love that idea. That's a great idea. I mean, it, it, it definitely has that. I mean, the idea of like the animations coming in, the scenes having no ending, like there was something that's so different in that kind of sketch. I'll leave you with this, Amy, before we talk about our next series, which we've been teasing for quite some time, animation, uh, a month of animation. Pronounce that with more verve, please. Anna. May should. I will leave you with this. We've talked about this movie, the adaptation of this movie, who played all these roles, but the original person set for Charlie Kaufman, Tom Hanks. He could do it. Although, has he ever been sad? I don't think. Oddly, Tom Hanks would have been as good in this role. Not because he's not a good actor, but I almost think, and I know Nick Cage is very famous, but to your point, we just talked about, he's able to disappear very deeply that you don't even see a glimmer of it. And maybe Tom Hanks would have been able to do it. Maybe that would have been directed and done great. I love Tom Hanks. No slight on Tom Hanks. But I think you needed to pick a lead actor off of center. Like a, uh, like, like not a Will Smith, not a Tom Cruise, not a, uh, like, you know, just because there would make, it would make him more endearing. And I think this character can't be, you can, you can feel the emotional weight of him, but he can't be like, oh, I love, like you can't, Donald needs to, but like, it's going to be a tougher thing. I I don't know. I don't know. Like the closest thing I can think of for Tom Hanks would be like. Joe versus the volcano. Mm-hmm. That's oh, the yeah. closest to this character. But even then, there's just you look at Tom Hanks and you're like, no, that guy's a winner. Oh, or you emotionally connect to him. Like I think Nicolas Cage can keep you at distance. Mm-hmm. Like I think that, the, and I think that that is uh, part of his charm too. He's not. He's not the 
oh my gosh, every time I see him, I'm so excited. It's like, we love him because we all know what Nicolas Cage is. And I think there are certain actors out there that you just like, uh, have I ever seen a bad Denzel Washington movie? Like, sure, but like a bad Denzel Washington movie is like bad pizza. It's like, that's fine. It's like, it's like at worst, you know, because um, they carry it. And I think that this movie you know, it's interesting, these like little choices that make it a little bit different, just a little bit different. And I'm not saying that, you know, maybe it would have been great, but I'm glad that we get Chris Cooper. I'm glad that we get uh, Nicolas Cage. And I love this performance from Meryl Streep, which is like a joyful, interesting, deep performance. And, I, you know, I just will be remiss if I don't talk about one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, which is where he goes, tells her to go fuck off. Like in that moment when Charlie and Meryl Streep are like in that mm-hmm. moment at the end, like that's him like, I think what you're doing is you're watching him merge all the characters into one. He's been telling himself to fuck off in his own head. And finally, mm-hmm. he gets somebody else to do it for it's him. The most, it's the most emotion and true emotion and who he is in a way that we, it's, the, it's, it's, it's him not holding back. And I think that's like the blending. That's like, and then that moment, he blends all these people together. The three become one. Or the four become one. <laughs> anyway, animation starts, Amy, and we are going to start it off. I think there's a couple of people who are like, hey, you only talk about like a lot of animated films that are family films or you exist in the Pixar world. Like, So let's start it off with uh, a favorite. And I think also in all this talk about animation, we have given Japanese animation. We've uh, talked about it, but we have never really addressed it on the show. We've never done any uh, anime on the show. And I think... We should start it off with a legend, a classic. The heavy hitter. Akira. Take a listen to the trailer. Neo Tokyo is about to explode. Streamline Pictures presents... A state-of-the-art adventure, Akira. And Akira is available wherever you can stream your films or also check out your local public library. Uh, They have a system called Hoopla, which is amazing. You can rent movies for free without even having to go to the library. Just use the resources of your local public library. As always, we have some unspooled merch out and available. Just go to tpublic.com slash unspooled. You'll see the latest shirts. We'll get some more up there, but we're always open to ideas. And you can always tell us what you're thinking about the show. We are creating a much bigger unspooled section right now on my Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Great conversations going on there for all the past episodes. So get on there. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our sound engineer, Devin Bryant, our producer, Molly Reynolds, and of course, our intern who are saying goodbye to uh, today of our last show, who's been cutting together all these amazing uh, videos and helping us uh, throughout the, all the show. A big thank you to Raven Goldston. Uh, so we will miss you, Raven. You've been wonderful. Yes, we will. And we will see you next week for Akira.
At Delta, we know Mike NHC prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave.